How a family defied death, escaped the Cambodian Civil War, and built the most popular donut shop in Los Angeles. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Do you want any water by chance? Okay, so that was Maylee Tao, and I'm actually in her donut shop right now, DK's Donuts. She's kind of a legend around Los Angeles, and literally the entire time we were doing this interview, people were coming in and out saying hi to her, and she knew everyone. Like, everyone was on a first-name basis with her. (laughs) Who is that? That is my best friend, Jesse. And uh, we might get interrupted because people will walk in and be like, oh, my God, the donut princess. Can I get a selfie with you? Can But the donut like, princess's story actually goes way back. It starts in the 70s in Cambodia. April 17th, 1975. The communist Khmer Rouge enters Phnom Penh to liberate their people from the encroaching conflict in Vietnam. But after four years, the grim truth seeps out. Let's start early before your birth. Tell me about what was going on in Cambodia. A lot of people don't know what happened in Cambodia, and pretty much it was a civil war. They were caught in between what was happening in the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of crossfire. And my mom, you know, she was born in the small, tiny village in Cambodia. And before, when she was nine years old, it was a normal village life you know my grandparents they owned a soy sauce factory and a fermentation factory where they had like 50 workers and my grandma she would make food for all the workers my mom would be playing you know it's just like kind of a normal village story and then one day out of nowhere there were there was this radio that said everybody needs to leave their home and they had people come with guns, there were bombs, and they had to basically have a, a huge exodus of the people from their villages, literally uprooted from their lives. Thousands of people forced to leave their homes and just said, walk. They had guns behind their back from these soldiers, and they were forced to basically go to the jungle or go to a new home, which was not their home. They were forced to go into the jungle and they were told that they needed to build their own homes out of just like bamboo or wood. And they created their own homes for themselves. And they would tell them to, you know, any belongings, any jewelry, anything valuable, they were told to discard it and they they confiscated it. All they really had were pots and pans and the shirts and clothes on their back. So they were kind of forced into these slave camps where they would work rice paddies or farms. And if you disobeyed, they would kill you. Uh, My mom says that she saw families buried alive for disobeying the Khmer Rouge, which was this force that came and kind of overthrew the rule and tried to kind of take over and rule over Cambodia. There were times where lots of families would escape. They would try to escape to the border of Thailand. And this is like 500 kilometers away by foot. So they would escape. There were like these 
kind of systems, kind of like the Underground Railroad, how we see it in our nation here. Where people were like ferrying yeah, other people they, out. Like in the middle of the night, you know, paid them with gold uh, per person. And, you know, that's what my parents did the first time. First, they made the arduous journey through the jungle, like where you're like sleeping with tigers and snakes and eating spiders and rats. And my, my mom and her family were in this predicament of being homeless for about almost four years. Their first attempt to go to Thailand, they you know, were in the, in the little refugee camps. But because they didn't have an address, they were put into a bus that sent you right back to Cambodia over the Dumrek Mountains where there were dead bodies and bombs. So luckily, my my mom and her family were fine. But, you know, they're 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 just homeless. Basically, for the next you know year, they were trying to find where to settle down but they were kind of captured again into these like concentration camps. And, um, you know, they just had to work. They worked from 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. There were always people watching you. If you disobeyed them, they would shoot you. And it was just this time where, you know, you had to obey them. Otherwise you would die. And there was this part of the story where the the Khmer Rouge was like, oh, okay, so, you know, we're going to have like a huge party for you guys with like good food and good drinks. It's, it was a trap. So they had been digging up a huge hole about like, I think 200 feet by 200 feet, like a big, big hole. And at this picnic, they were planning on poisoning everyone and, and burying them in this big hole. Three days before this picnic was supposed to happen, the Vietnamese soldiers came and started shooting all the Khmer Rouge. And they were like, you're free, go, like, leave, leave this place so they could keep going to find freedom. So my parents, um, uh, my mom and her family ended up going back to Skun, which is this, again, that small village that I talked about in the beginning. And all that was left of their house was one wall. So what they did to live was they took that one wall with a piece of plastic and they lived under there for months trying to make these Chinese donuts. They're called Jaquai to really trade. So at that time, because it, it was like the whole country was a mess, there was no currency. So it was just like a barter system. Yes, exactly. And so my mom just looked around like she was one of those people those kids that would walk up to the cars and be like, you know, can you buy this like hot, hot donuts? She would go into the city in the market to sell, but it just wasn't enough. You know, they lived in extreme poverty. And my mom said, let's go try to flee again. Flee where? Back to Thailand. So, you know, maybe things are different now. Like maybe we can just go and stay at the refugee camp and get sponsored. Um, there was a lot of cars that were pulling up with luggages. And she said, okay, I think people are trying to find freedom again. Let's follow them. So by foot again, they went to Thailand, but they ran into this tank, you know, like the Vietnamese soldier tank. And my grandma with her last pair of gold earrings asked them, asked the soldiers, can you, can we please go inside your tank and can you take us, you know, 
so we don't have to walk the whole way. And they did take him like halfway. And then they walked the rest of the way. They did the whole underground railroad type of thing again. And this time, you know, my my aunt, which is my mom's sister, had married somebody and they were living in America. So now we had an address. We had a phone number in America. And then the Red Cross was there and they said, you know, which country do you want to go to? They had options for countries that were accepting refugees. And my grandpa said, let's go to America. Like America is where there's freedom. There's new opportunities there. Like, let's go there. They got onto a bus. They got onto a plane. They landed in San Francisco. And, you know, they eventually made their way down to uh, L.A.'s Chinatown. They settled in a one-bedroom apartment that literally slept like 10 people. They would lay like, you know, one, one body next to another, and each of them started to find work. She actually started to try to go to school, but she was 17 at this time and didn't know any English, and they put her in ESL school. So she just was like, I'd rather work. And her first job was a seamstress. Uh, a penny a piece was what she earned. And our my other uncles took other odd jobs, and they eventually saved up $20,000. And they heard, um, you know, my grandpa, He every every morning he went on a hike. Now they were living in Hollywood. They went, he went on a hike and he saw a donut shop and he walked in and he looked and the, the woman was Cambodian and he just had a conversation with them and he, he thought to himself, I think my daughter can run this business because my, you know, my, my mom, she was very, she's a great salesman. She has business experience. And so she, he came home and asked my mom, do you think you could do this? She walks into that donut shop and in 20 minutes, she already understands the business and she goes, yes, I can. In order to find a donut shop that is for sale, you look for Ted Noy, which is the donut king, the donut king. <laughs> So this is where the intersection happens. So my, my dad, Kong Tao, is it's Ted Noy's nephew. So in fact, my dad said that when he came to America, he was picked up in a car with Ted Noy was driving and there were maple bars in the back. And so Ted had actually come here many years before he was working three jobs and he just realized like, I can't really afford to feed my whole family even while working three jobs. One night he went to a donut shop and he fell in love with the, the combination of a donut and a coffee. He instantly was intrigued and, you know, eventually started training and at a Winchell's and found his, you know, started his own donut shop in Newport Beach. He realized that there was a need and he realized he could duplicate it and create a leasing system so that people could have their own donut shops and he could profit as well. And he only leased to Cambodians coming over. You know, my mom's family had just saved enough for their own donut shop. They went to Ted and Ted had a franchise fee that was way too high for them to afford. It's like, it's too expensive. We can't afford it. But Ted's sister had a donut shop that had a lower fee. And that's where, you know, she went to go train and work and eventually learned the business. But um, my mom finally got to, you know, she was working in like Lake Paris and Ted Noy is actually the matchmaker 
of Kong, my dad, to my mom. So one day, you know, um, Ted's sister, who we were renting the donut shop from, said, oh, there's a really like beautiful, you know, young woman. She's hardworking. Like, you know, one of you should, you know, marry, you know, marry her or put her in the family. And the reason for this is because back then arranged marriages was a thing. So my uncle Ted and my dad Kong, uh, they drove two and a half hours to Lake Paris and saw my mom for 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, they went to my grandpa to ask for her hand in marriage. And in a short period of time, they were married. So now my mom was married into this family. Um, he, she tells me stories of like, she had gone to Ted's mansion at the time. Um, where he hosted a lot of Cambodians and had dance troops there. And it was in Mission Viejo, where it is massive, beautiful, like gorgeous, like mansion. Um, and she spent a lot of her time just working. You know, she'd work from 4 a.m. all the way until the late afternoon. And she just built the business up and up wherever she was at. In 1981, um, they were they had a donut shop in El Segundo, and there seemed to be another donut shop that opened up across the street, who was trying to compete. Really, so yes. you got a rival. Right. And DK's Donuts here in Santa Monica, this was actually owned by my grandparents and the person who's running it said that she wanted to give it back. So my mom, after work one day from El Segundo, drives up to Santa Monica and she sits outside this parking lot and she's scouting. She sees many people come in and they leave disappointed. The showcase barely has only two, do two dozen donuts with like very little variety. The coffee's old. They close early. They just didn't do a good job. There was not a lot of love and warmth, you know, behind it. And so she told my grandparents, let's not sell it. If I can prove to you that I can up the sales in three months, can I, can I have it? And she did. She definitely had a little bit more variety, even though it's not as much as it is today. She had pretty much 12 varieties. And back then, the fanciest item was a, a cinnamon roll or an apple fritter. And she made a more a wider range of coffees. She expanded the menu to like pre-packed sandwiches. And she just really connected with the community on what they needed. My mom is a, an amazing businesswoman, but she's also an amazing cook. So she started to put together these like combinations of things and expanding it, you know, fruit cups and, and different pastries. And, you know, 20 plus years later, it was super successful. I was born on Christmas in 1989 and DK's was here. At the age of six, I was already helping my parents, standing on a milk crate, giving change, going to Costco, getting supplies. I think my earliest memories was like running around the behind the counter, taking some donut holes, stuffing them in my mouth. And, you know, I was always here with my parents. I would have regulars still tell me the story of 
me being here running around with my brother. And this is my daycare. You know, this is where I spent my time. Did you want to be like integrated into the family business? Like, did you see a future here? Well, DK's is always plan B. My mom, she always was like, you know, go and get education. A part of the story they didn't tell you was my parents were so poor at a certain time before the war that my mom at such a young age would have to clean the school to earn the ability to go to school. Her biggest dream was to give us the education. So I went to UC San Diego and I would still come back and help out on the weekends. I don't think she ever wanted me to come back. Why not? I think it's just hard work. You know, and it's like, I think she knows I'm destined for more. Did you believe that too? I thought it was just plan B. You know, I've spent most of my life here. I was just so curious to see what was out there. What's plan A? So plan A was actually a news reporter, which is what I studied. I studied communications. I worked for the CW network, reporting with some of the older reporters. But I quickly realized that none of this was fulfilling to me, that I could dedicate my life to reporting on other stories, but it just didn't appeal to me. I thought if I'm going to dedicate my life to something, I want it to be fulfilling, worthwhile, and something that will make me happy, something I can build. So, you know, I came back to LA, my brother and my mom, they said, Hey, we need help at the shop. I said, okay, I'll do this temporarily. (laughs) So I'm helping out in the mornings, but this time I have a whole fresh new vision for what this place could be. I always knew it was a popular spot among locals, but I wanted to tell everyone about the shop. I knew that this place was special. So I started to create my own branding and create my own culture here. And I, you know, started off with expanding the menu. So it went from like 15 items of donuts to 120. Some of these things include the Uve donut. It's a purple yam donut. We were the first ones in the world to make it. The most impactful addition would be the half croissant, half donut, which we call the Onut. We used to call it the D-K-R-O-N-U-T. But there's another person in New York, the originator of the concept, who called it the C-R-O-N-U-T. When he found out that we were making it in L.A., he sent us a cease and desist letter. So we changed the name to Onut. By then, everybody had known we were the first ones to make this as well. That was the time where DKs exploded. People who weren't from here knew who we were and were down to come and try it. It exploded. And when I mean exploded, I mean one day the phone would not stop ringing and everybody wanted the Onet. We had a whole wall full of orders. People would come in here, wait two hours to get one or a dozen, however they wanted. I called my mom and I said, I think I did something. After the half croissant, half donut exploded, I created the half waffle, half donut. Then we were featured on the Food Network. We had food bloggers come in. We were written up in every single publication talking about how good our donuts were. What advice would you give to yourself when you were considering this to be your plan B? 
During the transition of being, you know, graduating college and trying out what really made me happy or what was the legacy that I wanted to fill. And I'm a big believer that it doesn't have to be one legacy. It can be multiple legacies. I guess the advice is just everything's going to be okay. I never saw myself as like this big person. I thought of myself as just this girl who works in a donut shop, who has a family, who, you know, I wanted to help them. I wanted to enhance it. I wanted to make an impact. And I think I did that. What advice would you give to someone maybe in a similar position, someone who's trying to choose their path? There are plenty of immigrant families who have kids and the kids have the choice of going with the, you know, going with what their parents uh, established for them or choosing a different path. And I think that at the end of the day, it's like, what makes you fulfilled? What makes you happy? And you're not going to really know until you go through and choose a path. And for me, I chose donuts. In choosing donuts, Maylee demonstrates just how much good comes from doing something you deeply care about. The phrase, do what you love, has been said a million times, but her family's story makes this simple platitude sink in. There is nothing the Tao family cares more about than taking care of one another. This has given all their hard work a purpose. It's driven them to overcome every roadblock. It's what allowed Maylee's grandparents to fight for survival amidst unimaginable horrors. It's what pushed Maylee and her mom to transform a failing donut shop into a national success. Generation by generation, purpose-driven work has led the Taos to multiply their success. Oil, dough, heart, and a whole lot of hard work has led Maylee and her family out of the most minimal means and into complete abundance. As long as future Taos choose to follow their passion, just as Maylee has, I have no doubt this abundance will continue to spread. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I actually did this in person with Maylee in the donut shop. So if you liked it, make sure to subscribe and rate us five stars. Finding Founders is hosted and produced by me, Samuel Donner. Our writer for this episode was Kylie McCreary. Callan Turnbull and Lauren Yamada edited this episode.